Hey, good morning. I am very happy to see you. I'm glad you're here with us. You know, we just wrapped up our first ever Serve Week here at Connect Church. And I got to tell you guys, it was awesome. We've got some photos here on the screen. We had over 70 volunteers give a couple of hundred man hours in 13 different opportunities out and about around the city of Calgary. Many of you guys that are here in the room, you were a part of that. Basically, what we did is we all dressed up like construction pylons, and then we went to various places in which there are people who have needs, and we did our very best to meet those needs in Jesus' name. So we made meals for Ukrainian refugees. How great is that? Man, we sorted donations at Hope Mission and the Calgary uh, Pregnancy Care Clinic. We donated blood. I lost some weight yesterday giving blood. I got home and I'm like, Amber, I should weigh myself because I think I lost some weight after doing this. We served meals to the homeless at the Calgary Drop-In Center and we did a whole bunch more. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It really is. Can we make some noise for everybody that participated in Team Week? And I want to say an extra special thanks and shout out to our team leads. These are the people who actually organized each one of these opportunities. Thank you guys for working so hard and putting in that effort. It allowed a whole lot of folks here at Connect to get plugged in, get involved during service. Now, um, doing service rather. Now, these are not all the photos and I didn't even begin to list all the opportunities. So I'm going to encourage you guys, follow us on social media. If you don't follow us on Facebook, if you don't follow us on Instagram, it's at Connect Calgary. Connect Calgary, and you'll see photos, you'll see uh, recaps of all the different ministry opportunities that we were involved in in the last week. Now, why did we do this? It's not because these 70 people just had a lot of free time on their hands, and they're like, I'm kind of bored. I should really do something with myself. I I don't have anything going on in life. No, it wasn't because of that. It also wasn't because like this was court-ordered community service. I just want to be clear. We're wearing these orange shirts here. I was like, (laughs) it's not like the pastor, me, you know, it's not like I got sentenced to community service and I'm like, okay, how can we like organize this community serve week so that nobody knows that I got in trouble and I got to go out? No, it wasn't like that at all, okay? Why did we go out and serve in the city of Calgary? Listen, we did it because we believe the church is a movement, not a monument. The church is a movement, not a monument. The church exists to receive the blessings of God, but not to keep them for ourselves. God does not bless us so that we can hoard and hold on to his goodness here in this little room. Instead, God blesses his church so that we can release those blessings out into the world. The church is a river, not a lake. Are you with me? Rivers keep moving. That's the difference. But a lake, it just sits there. It's still, it holds all the water in. The church is not to be that way. We believe in life overflowing. That is, God blesses us to the point that we couldn't contain it all, so we might as well share it with the people around us. Hey, there's one other uh, interesting example of that and how it plays out here at Connect Church out in the lobby. When you walked in, You probably saw some cookies out there. You smelled some cookies. All right, let me tell you where that is. I want you to know, because when you eat them this morning, I want you to really appreciate it. So uh, way back in November of last year, we did our Crazy Faith series. Remember that? How could we forget, right? Many of you are here because of the Crazy Faith series. And one of the things that we did, in fact, it was probably the largest giveaway that we did during the entire series, was that we decided, we knew of a church in the city that was just, they were struggling post-pandemic, they needed some help. And so we said, hey, as a way to serve your church and to build God's kingdom, we 
we're going to pay for Hope Church, which meets up in Simons Valley. We're going to pay for them to have a venue space to meet on Sundays for the next six months. So we paid their rental at the community center that they were meeting in for six months. It was like 10 grand. It was a big, big donation. But we were glad to do it because when other churches get stronger, we also are blessed. We get the benefit as well. And so uh, in, in thanks, uh, that six-month period has now come to a close. And in thanks, they decided to bake 300 cookies and drop them off out here in the lobby for you guys to eat. So listen, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? So when you have a cookie today, I want you to be reminded that, hey, this is a nice little treat, but Jesus told us it's more blessed to give than to receive, didn't he? Yeah? So when you eat that cookie, you're like, hey, this is nice, but it was a much bigger blessing to be able to serve that church or to serve these people out in the city of Calgary. Okay, now here's the good news. Um, because we had such a great time at Serve Week, uh, if, if you didn't get a chance to participate with us or um, you wanted to and you, you just weren't able, then we are going to have more opportunities in the future. So like I was at the Calgary Drop-In Center serving a meal. We got done. There were like, I don't know, 13, 15 of us or whatever. And everybody's looking around. They're like, we could totally do this regularly. Like we could do this every month. Somebody was like, we could do this every week. And I'm like, all right, dial it back a little bit. But every month seems reasonable. So in, this, in the fall, we're going to have connect groups that are specifically devoted to getting out in the community and doing these uh, sorts of serve initiatives. So there's going to be lots of opportunities in the days to come. But as we're going to find out today, there are some opportunities even now. Now, since we just finished up Serve Week, I thought it might be a good idea to continue our uh, Summer Essential series, which is really, it's turned out to be, it wasn't intended to be this way, but it's turned out to be a study on Luke chapter number 10. And I thought, let's just keep going in Luke 10, and let's look at one of the most famous examples of service and sacrifice that are recorded in the Bible. If you are not a Bible person, you're not a Bible reader, you don't know Old Testament from New Testament or anything like that, you've actually heard this story before. You're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. Ever heard that phrase? That's actually biblical. It comes from Luke chapter number 10. And although this is a very well-known story, the meaning behind this story is often completely misunderstood. Because the, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells is not simply designed to, to teach, you should be nice and help people. That's kindergarten stuff, okay? The, the true meaning of this story is so rich. And it's kind of subversive, if I can put it that way. Like, it, it has so much to say, and it's probably not exactly what you expect. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you on the front end so you, you know what's going on here. The meaning of the story or the parable of the Good Samaritan is this. I can't love an invisible God if I don't love visible people. I cannot love God if I don't love the people who were made in God's image. This is what Jesus is going to be talking about, and this is going to lead us into our truth for today. So Luke chapter number 10, we're going to start reading here in verse number 25. Uh, verses will be on the screen. You can follow along. What we're going to do is we're just going to walk kind of verse by verse through this passage, all right? The Bible says, one day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, take note of that word, by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? All right, so I want to set the stage here. We have a very knowledgeable religious person. He's an expert in interpreting the Old Testament law of Moses. And one day, Jesus is giving a teaching, like in a synagogue or something, and he stands up and he asks a question, but the Bible clues us in to the fact that his question is not sincere. 
He's trying to test or trap Jesus in what he says. So this is the filter through which we're going to read his question and Jesus' answer. It's not sincere. He's trying to catch Jesus so that he can win an argument with the most famous rabbi around. He asks, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you pay close attention to that sentence or that question, it don't make no sense. Think about this. What do you have to do to inherit something? Just be born? No, no, no. If you die, then you're leaving an inheritance, okay? So if somebody is leaving you an inheritance, what do you have to do? Survive? I mean, that's it, right? Like, you just, you get an inheritance by virtue of the family that you're born into. You with me? You don't have to do anything to earn an inheritance, or if you do, your family's unhealthy. You should receive an inheritance because you are your father and mother's child, and they love you. But what he asks is, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? So right away, we should kind of notice what he's asking here is a bit conflicted, it's a little confusing, and it may not be a very good question in the first place. So in uh, verse number 27, 26, rather, Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Oh, I love Jesus so much. He's so smart, I'm telling you. Okay, he's asked a question, and rather than answering, he asks another question in response. Ooh. Now listen, when people ask me a question, you know what I do? I'm like, let me tell you what I think, man. I got, and I'm typing out long posts on Facebook, and I'm getting all the arguments together in my head. I am quick to give an answer, I'll tell you that. Now, Jesus... Jesus was so wise. When he was asked a trick question, he said, well, tell me, what do you think? Man, I just, we would be better served in our world today if somebody came and asked you a question, whether it's sincere or not, if you said, wow, you know, I've got a lot of thoughts. I think that's a really good question. Tell me, what do you think about it? You know why? Because it lets them define the parameters of the conversation. I don't know how many times somebody's asked me a question. I've gone on to this long theological explanation, and they're like, yeah, that's not what I meant. What I'm asking is specifically about this. And if I would have just clarified in the beginning, being like, well, what do you think? Or, you know, how do you understand this? Would have been a whole lot more helpful. So Jesus, the master teacher, answers with a question. What does the law of Moses say, and how do you read it? So the man, the expert in the law, answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He takes two verses, one from Deuteronomy, one from Leviticus. He puts them together in a way that was very familiar to ancient Jews, and he said, basically, if you want to follow God, if you want to demonstrate that you are a part of God's family, then you need to love God with everything at your disposal, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, so do this and you will live. But in verse 29, we read, the man wanted to justify his actions. So catch this now. He's continuing with this same insincere approach to the conversation. He wants to justify himself, either look good in front of the other experts in the religious law, or maybe look good in Jesus' eye, or maybe he's still hoping to win an argument here. I don't know. But it says he wanted to justify his actions. So when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he said, well, who is my neighbor really? So in response to this conversation, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lot of times we can rip Jesus' stories and parables and teachings out of their context, and then we kind of just say, oh, like, this is what it means. But you can't understand what a Bible verse or a story or a passage means without the larger context around it. And so you're not going to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan unless you understand the context, or the conversation, rather, which gave birth to the story in the first place. So Jesus replied with a story. It's a parable. Now, let me pause real quick here. A parable is a fictional story. 
number one, okay? So Jesus is about to talk about some men in this story. These men most likely never existed. This is a story he's making up to illustrate a point, okay? Second thing you need to know is that a parable is designed to be an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's a small story with a big impact. It is designed to be short and insightful and memorable, and it's supposed to teach you something deep beyond it. The last thing you need to know about a parable, and we did a whole series on parables. You can go back in our podcast archives and stuff and and listen to that. Third thing you need to know about a parable is in nearly every one of the parables Jesus taught him, he taught in dozens, in nearly every one, there is a character in that parable that is meant to represent you, and there is a character in that parable that is meant to represent God. So anytime you read a parable, you need to be asking the question, well, where am I at in this story? And then where is God in this story? And here's what I love. In many of the parables, it's very obvious. But in some of the parables, including the one we're going to read today, it's not what you think it is. You are not the person you think you are inside of this parable. It's part of what makes his teachings so genius. So Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. The the expert at the law was like, well, who really is my neighbor anyway? So Jesus replied with a parable. He says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, for us, we're kind of like, all right, I'm familiar with Jerusalem. Maybe I've heard of Jericho, like the walls come tumbling down and stuff, but like, I I don't know what is going on here. But people in Jesus' day who heard the setup for this parable, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. So in ancient Israel, Jerusalem was the capital city. And uh, Jericho was a suburb of Jerusalem. It was about 27 mile or 27 kilometers away. All right, 27 kilometers away. This is basically the exact distance between downtown Calgary and Airdrie. So this is the the distance that we're talking about. And what would happen is that uh, there were people that would work in Jerusalem, but they would live in the suburbs, kind of like we do here today, okay? And so uh, if you wanted to go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you would start in Jerusalem, which is actually a city on top of a hill. It's about 2,500 feet above sea level. And then if you wanted to go to Jericho, 27 kilometers away, you had to descend a very steep and dangerous mountain path because Jericho, the city, was 800 feet below sea level. So we've got this huge huge differential. We've got this long distance. Now, this particular road became very, very dangerous around the time of Jesus because people were, it was like an economic recession. There were a bunch of people that had lost their jobs and they had turned to crime. And so it was very common if you were going from Jerusalem down the Jericho road to be attacked and to be robbed. In fact, there was one section that was so dangerous, it was called the blood pass the blood pass. And people would get nervous about going through the blood pass. So Jesus sets up this story in which a Jewish man is leaving Jerusalem. He's walking down the road to Jericho. He's waylaid by bandits. They steal everything, even the dude's clothes. He probably didn't even have good sneakers on. They didn't care. They took it all. And so he's left dead or half dead on the side of the road. That, that phrase half dead, it is a, it's a euphemism, which essentially means they look dead and you can't really know for sure if they're yet dead. Does that make sense? Not conscious, might as well be dead. Okay. It goes on to say in verse 31, this is where kind of the meat of the parable starts. By chance, a priest came along. All right. So Jerusalem's the capital city. There's a temple there. And the pastor at the temple came walking along. Now you would expect the pastor would definitely have compassion, right? Except the scripture says, when the priest came along, he saw the man lying there and he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Woo! Okay. 
This pastor is evil in, is either an evil dude, okay, or there's something more going on here. And number one, he is definitely a careless guy, okay? There's no doubt about that. But I want to give you a little context for why he probably walked beyond this dude that was laying on the side of the road, okay? So in ancient Israel, in Jesus' day, priests would serve shift work at the temple, Okay? So they would work for two weeks on inside of the temple. They never went home. They stayed there and worked 24-7 for two weeks, and then they would get roughly two weeks off. And so it was very common for priests to work in Jerusalem for two weeks, and then they would travel to Jericho. Jericho was kind of like the priestly enclave in the area. Most of the priests lived there. They had a whole neighborhood in the community that they lived in. And so he was on his, he was finishing up with his two-week shift, and he was walking down to Jericho to have his time off, get back with his family, just enjoy a little vacay, all right? Now, here's the deal. According to the ancient Jewish law, the law of Moses, the Old Testament, if a priest were to come in contact with a dead body, then he would become ritually or ceremonially unclean. And he wouldn't be allowed into his house because then he would make the rest of his family ritually unclean. And so if he were to stop and touch the dead body or help this guy, because he doesn't know whether he's dead, if he were to do that, then he would have to take the guy back to Jerusalem So carry him up the mountain road. Once he got him there, he would have to ensure that the guy was cared for. And then the priest would have to go through a purification ritual, which would have taken about a week. And it would have cost him the cost of a red heifer because that was the sacrifice that had to be made. Now, how much was a red heifer? I have no idea, you guys, but it was probably a good amount. But if I want to buy a red heifer today, it's going to cost me a little bit of cash. So regardless, this was going to cost the priest time and it was going to cost him money. And so he's, I could just see him doing the calculus in his head where he's like, I, you know, I know I should help this guy. I kind of, I mean, poor dude, you know, but if I do, then I'm going to lose all of my time off of work. It's going to cost my family a lot of money. You know what? Somebody else will come by and do this. Somebody else can handle this. Like my situation is unique. I like, I have, I have a set of circumstances that not everybody has to deal with. And as a result, I'm going to take a pass here. I'm going to take a flyer and somebody else can handle this. So the priest goes out of his way to avoid the person that needs to be served. We then read, In verse 32, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. Now, a temple assistant was a a person from the tribe of Levi. They weren't a priest, but they served at the temple. So they might have been worship leaders. They could have been janitors. They might have been whatever. There's any number of things that they could have been. Maybe in our parlance today, we would say, this is a dream teamer. Okay, this is somebody who serves at the church, but they're not ordained, they're not a priest. Okay, so we don't exactly know what the timing is here. It's possible that the priest walks over and he's like, nah, man, I'm not dealing with this. And he turns around and goes away. And it's possible that the dream teamer was close enough that he saw all of this and he's like, well, I mean, if the priest isn't going to do it, then I don't have to do it. And because of the priest's example, he chose to follow in the priest's footsteps. Hey, let this be a lesson and a reminder. There are always people watching you. You don't think of yourself as a person of influence, but can I tell you, everyone has influence with someone. You really do. And the way you conduct yourself, people take notice of. They will see if you stop and help or if you pass by on the other side of the road. So maybe the temple assistant was just following the lead of the priest. But I think it's also possible, and hey, even more probable that something else was going on here. What if the temple assistant walks over and he sees this guy 
And he starts thinking to himself, I would love to help, but how? Like, what could I possibly do? I'm not a doctor. I'm a janitor. How could I help this guy? I don't get paid as much as the priest does. So like, I can't afford to to buy medicine for this guy and bring him to the inn or the hospital and get him taken care of. Like, I would love to help, but I really don't think there's anything I could do that would make a difference for this poor man. And so maybe, just maybe, this guy looked at a situation that seemed beyond his capacity, seemed like his involvement would not matter whatsoever. And as a result, he said, I would love to help, but I guess I can't. And he went on about his way. Okay, man gets waylaid by robbers. He's laying half dead on the side of the road. Priest comes by, ignores him. The temple assistant comes by and ignores him. Now listen, all the people who heard Jesus in this moment, they knew where this story was going because this was a very common form of story or teaching in ancient Israel. So like today, um, we have like this form of joke where we're like, a priest, a rabbi, and an Irishman walk into a bar, right? You, you know what I'm talking about there? Okay, I'm not going to finish the joke, by the way. Um, okay, so everybody knew two guys had already come, and they were decreasing in their commitment to God. One was a priest. He'd given his whole life. The other was a temple servant, so he had given his work life to God for sure. And so everybody knew that the next person to come along in this story was going to be a normal Jewish Joe six-pack, right? That's, what, that's what's going to happen. This is, everybody knew the normal Jewish guy was going to be the hero, except in verse 33, Jesus says, after the priest and after the temple assistant, then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion. For him. All right. What the heck is a Samaritan and why is he despised? I I mean, what? What? Now, the people hearing Jesus, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Okay. Here's why Samaritans were despised in Jesus' day. And here's who Samaritans were. So imagine um, Israel is kind of this long rectangle. Okay. And for years and years and years, for most of the Old Testament, the kingdom was divided in half. There was a southern kingdom, there was a northern kingdom, or at least a southern region, and a northern region. And uh, a few hundred years before the time of Christ, the Assyrian Empire had come in, and they had conquered the northern region of Israel. So they had killed off most of the men, they had deported nearly all the women and children, or they sold the women as slaves, you know, and the kids like they did in those days. And they repopulated that region with Assyrian people, okay? So what happens is over the course of centuries, there becomes this syncretic culture in which the people who now live in this middle northern part of the country of Israel are kind of Jewish and kind of Assyrian. It's like they speak their own language. They have their own culture. In fact, they had gone so far as to claim, you know what? God doesn't want us to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, Samaria, this region that they lived in, this is the new holy land. And so they built their own temple in their province and they were like, everybody should come here. And so Samaritans stopped going to Jerusalem to worship and they only worshiped at their own temple. About a hundred years or less than a hundred years before the time of Christ, there was this huge conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And at one point, um, we're told by Josephus, who was like an ancient Jewish historian, he's not a Christian, but Jewish historian, that the Samaritans entered the temple in Jerusalem, and they defiled it by dumping a bunch of human bones inside of the temple. Basically, what they were trying to do was ruin the temple so that all the Jews had to come worship at their buildings. Does that make sense? Oh, you can bet, particularly in this day, 
the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were the enemy. They were the other. In fact, check this out. In the first century, there was a law in Jewish courts that if you murdered a Jew, you would get the death penalty. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, baby. But if you murdered a Samaritan, pay a fine. It's true. Because they were viewed as less than. They weren't even fully human. They certainly weren't a part of God's covenant family. They were never the heroes in Jewish stories. And yet, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it is the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, who comes by and comes to aid when the religious people are not. So watch this now. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Now look, olive oil and wine were like ancient medicine, no doubt, okay? So wine is an antiseptic. Olive oil has always been used as like a curative. It has healing properties and stuff like that. But I also want you to consider the fact that olive oil and wine were two of the things that were used every single day in temple worship. These were implements of worship. And so he is using the very same resources that the religious people should have been using to serve and to save this guy. So he bandages him up, but he doesn't leave him there on the side of the road. The scripture says he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn. There was no inn on the blood pass, okay? So he carried him all the way down to Jericho. He took him to an inn where he took care of him. He... He cared for that guy the entire time. I want you to understand this. If they had met a week before, they would have gotten into a fist fight. If they had met just a few days before, the Jewish guy would have screamed and cursed and kicked and did everything he could to throw this Samaritan out of his area. And yet in this moment, the Samaritan is moved with compassion and he's helping and serving a guy who would never even do that for him. Okay, so he serves the guy all night long, and the scripture tells us the next day, verse 35, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. Two silver coins, each silver coin would have been worth one day's wages. So think about your salary and how much you earn basically every day. I don't know. I hope for your sake it's thousands of dollars, probably a few hundred bucks. And this is what he pays, two of them, to help this guy. But then he goes a step further, and he says, If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, this is important because if the man had incurred more uh, of a debt to the innkeeper, if he'd stayed longer than that money, if the money ran out before he had to leave or before he could leave, then he would have recovered only to be in debt to the innkeeper. And remember, everything's been stolen from him. So as far as we know, he has nothing. In that day, that meant that he would have immediately been thrown in a debtor's prison and he would have to work off the debt to the innkeeper. So this Samaritan is going so far above and beyond to care for this guy, to protect his future, to provide for him in every way he possibly can. All right, so story fades away and we're left with Jesus and the, did I describe that well? We're left with Jesus and the expert in the religious law. And Jesus looks at him and he says, now, which of the three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The expert in religious law replied, well, I hate to say it. In fact, I can't even bring myself to say Samaritan here. I guess the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now you go and do the same. 
Whew. Man, I got to tell you, this story is powerful. I've already gone for 30 minutes, and I could go for another 30. I'm not gonna, but what I want you to know this morning is that the point of the story of the Good Samaritan is not simply that as religious people, you should, you should do the right thing. You should be nice. You should help people. That's not it. The point of this story, remember, we're connecting our love for God with our love for our neighbor. The point of this story is when I see people who are in need, my willingness and the level to which I will help them is reflective of the level at which I actually love God. Maybe we could put it like this. You love God as much as the person you love least. It's just a reality because every person, including the Samaritans, including the Quebecois, including every person on the planet, there's some parallels there. Uh, Every person on the planet, the most hardened atheist, the most devout Muslim, the most mature Christian, every person on the planet is created in the image of God. And if you love them, you love the God who created them. And if you hate them, then you cannot help but also hate the God in whose image they are created. So what is Jesus communicating here? It's a very simple truth. It's this. Saved people serve people. Saved people serve people. This is what we do. As Christians, it's not serve week, it's serve life, yo. This is what you signed up for. (laughs) If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you are committing to a lifetime of service and sacrifice. And if you don't want to live that kind of life, do not follow Jesus. Go follow somebody else. Go set your own course. Because I promise you, to walk in the steps of Jesus is to die to yourself daily so that you can help other people come alive in God. Saved people serve people. Jesus concluded his story by saying, now you go and do the same. We cannot claim to love God if we do not serve the people around us. We cannot claim to love God if we only have words and never have deeds. You know, in the book of James, James was the brother of Jesus. Do you know that? Can you imagine how hard it is to grow up with the Messiah as your older brother? Whew, he had it rough. So James, the brother of Jesus, he's writing a letter to early Christians, and he says, hey, some of you guys are saying that you can show or demonstrate your faith. You have faith, and you don't need deeds because it's faith that saves us. But he says, listen, I will show you my faith through my deeds. What he's communicating and what the gospel tells us is not that we do good deeds in order to be saved, but rather we do good deeds because we've been saved. We help rescue others because we ourselves have been rescued. You with me? John chapter number 13. Jesus is on the last night of his life. And on the last night of his life, before he has dinner with his boys, he takes a towel, he gets down on his knees in front of them, and he washes the feet of all of the disciples. Now, I don't have time to talk to you about the meaning and the message behind all of that, but what he says to them is this, whoever wants to be greatest among you must become servant of all. In God's kingdom, the way that you prove you're great, the way that you become great, the way that you gain a name, the way that you earn uh, God's favor on your life, the way that that comes is by a willingness to die to self and live to him. To say no to me 
so I can say yes to all of those people. There are millions of people outside of these windows that don't know God. And they're not going to be argued into the kingdom. They will be loved into the kingdom. Because you weren't argued into the kingdom. Jesus didn't show up and have a debate and won, and you're like, well, dang, I guess I've I got to believe. <laughs> no, you were loved. You were, it is the kindness of God that draws us to repentance, the scripture says. So saved people serve people. That's what it means to be saved. It's not how you get saved, but it's what it means to be saved. Okay, I got to move quickly here. Saved people serve people even though it's inconvenient. Okay, now, the, the, the priest, it was going to be really inconvenient for him to in, involve himself in this situation. And he had all these justifications. There were all these reasons why he couldn't serve, right? It's like, oh, man, I got a big family. Must be easy when you're single. You got all this free time to go serve anybody you want. But listen, get married, have a family, get a career, bro, and you'll find out you don't have time. Listen, save people, serve people, even when it's inconvenient. Can I get that just as a stinger, and I'll play that periodically throughout the message? Mm-hmm. Save people, serve people, even when it's inconvenient. Can I tell you this? All service is inconvenient. Anytime you serve, it's an inconvenience. Every time you say no to you so you can say yes to somebody else, you're saying no to you. So it always is an inconvenience. There's never a time when it's easy. My wife, you know, we have a shared eye calendar, right? And she blocks off time so that like massage clients don't schedule anything. I don't schedule anything. She's like, this is our day off. Nothing goes on the calendar. And while that's helpful in, in our sense and like to keep people from taking over, God has full authority to override your block time. He has the right to put any situation into your calendar and say, nope, this is a divine moment. You're a saved person and saved people serve others even when it's inconvenient. So don't come at me like, man, I just, it's too, uh, right now it's too difficult and it's really inconvenient. I know it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient for everybody. That's the point. Save people, serve people, even though they don't think it'll make a difference. Oh, man. You're like, oh, gosh, Dan. You know, like, I really, I, like, I just don't think I have anything to offer. Are you kidding me? Of course you have something to offer. God has placed gifts and talents and abilities within you. You have resources that other people don't have. You don't believe, I know you don't have as much resources as you want, but I wish you would have been with me at the drop-in center on Wednesday. And you would look at, at the situations that people, our neighbors in our city live in, and you would have thought, I have so much. I am so blessed. I could help. I've always thought it wouldn't make a difference, but you know what? It really does. I, I just, oh man, I'm out of time. Okay. We're serving, I'm telling you, we're serving dinner to these people. All we did when we served a meal at the drop-in center was we got a plate from the kitchen and we walked it over, and we set it down in front of people, and we said, enjoy, be well, have a great night. And then we turned around, and we walked on, we got it. This is no lie. It caused a lot of tears among our group. We finished serving like 300 meals. And again, we're just walking plates over. As our group in these stupid orange shirts walked out, the entire cafeteria started applauding for us. It's a true story. Ask anybody that was there. And you're like, this is so dumb. Like, I can't, I'm, I'm a nobody. I don't, but listen, save people, serve people, even when they don't think it'll make a difference because the stuff that you think could never matter actually has the power to change lives. Save people, serve people, even though it costs them something. Even though it costs them something. If you give to connect or you give to the mustard seed or you give to somebody on the side of the road who's panhandling, 
that means less resources in your pocket. It will cost you something. If you sign up and you go on a serve opportunity, you're giving up your time. That's time that you could spend with your family or your kids. And like, it costs you something. So you've got to recognize that like, there's never going to be a time in which you want to serve and it doesn't cost you something. That's just part of what it means to serve. Save people, serve people, even though it's inconvenient, even though they don't think it'll make a difference, even though it costs them something. Can I make a quick pitch to you? And I promise I'm done. Um, there are these opportunities to serve out in the community, yes, and I want you to get involved in them. I want you to have open eyes so that when there are these divine blood pass moments, that's a weird way to phrase it, when there are these moments that you weren't expecting, there's somebody that God brings your way that is suddenly in need, that you're ready and willing to jump in and get involved. But can I also tell you, there are opportunities to serve right here at Connect Church every single week. We can get you serving people on a regular basis. We can plug you in via the dream team. You will discover that you have gifts and talents and abilities, and you love serving when we find the right place for you to serve. So I just want to reiterate what Kyle said earlier. Please, please, please consider joining the dream team. Why? Well, because we need you, because you need us, and because saved people serve people. It's what we do. So connectcalgary.ca slash dream team. Okay, next steps, slash next steps. Just go to the website. Okay, last thing I'm gonna say is this. Last thing I'm gonna say is this. Save people, serve people, because that's what Jesus did for them. Mark chapter number 10, verse 45. Jesus said about himself, for even the son did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give himself a, as a ransom, a payment for many. Ah, oh, man, I painted myself into a hole here. I don't have time to explain all of this. I told you at the beginning of the message that in every parable, there is a character that represents you and there is a character that represents God. Now, when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, we think to ourselves, well, I ain't the priest and I'm not the temple assistant. No, I know who I am. I am the Good Samaritan. I'm the, I'm the person with the kind heart. I'm the helpful one. Now, if that's true, let me ask you this. Where is God in that parable? It would be, if not the only one of the only parables in which God is not present. That seems strange to me because we're talking about eternal life. That's the context. So what if this, and I'm just going to leave this to you. What if you went back and read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and instead of putting yourself in the shoes of the Good Samaritan, put yourself in the naked body of the dude lying half dead on the side of the road? And what if you saw God, Jesus, as not the good Samaritan, but the great Samaritan? What if you saw him as the one who comes and rescues us when we have nothing to offer, when we are dead in our trespasses and sins? What if he's the one who comes and he gives us healing, glad wine, and the olive oil of God's presence? What if he's the one that instead of putting our bodies on a donkey and carrying us to Jericho, he puts our sins on his body on the cross and he takes us to eternity with God? What if he's the one that says, don't worry about the bill, I'll pay for all of it on his behalf? Jesus served us. We've got to serve people in response. Saved people serve people.